0: So this happened to me about 13 years ago. I was 10 at the time, and my younger brother was 8. We had just moved to a new town that year, and the Walmart here had this sweet arcade up near the service desk. So every time my parents would bring us grocery shopping, they'd give us each a few dollars and let us play in the arcade. The town had an incredibly low crime rate, and the arcade is at the front of the store where dozens of people are checking out. So what could possibly go wrong? My brother is playing the claw machine, While I'm standing on the side of the machine, trying to help him angle the claw perfectly above a stuffed animal that he's trying to get, suddenly this random hillbilly walks up to the claw machine next to us, inserts a quarter, and begins moving the claw around. But for most of this time, he's making eye contact with my brother and smiling, not even watching his game. He's not talking to us, just staring and smiling. He has long, thin brown and silver hair, pulled back in a loose ponytail at the base of his skull, a camo trucker hat, and a long scraggly beard. I remember vividly the way he smelled. Stale beer, ashtray, and something that smelled like sweet yet sour dirt, maybe fungus. He tries making small talk with my brother and I, who were raised to be aware of strangers, yet still be polite. Eventually, we get bored of the game we're playing, and I usher my brother to follow me to a new game on the opposite side of the arcade. A few seconds later, the man follows us, stationing himself once again at the claw machine next to us. At some point, an overweight lady walks in and says to the hillbilly, What are you doing to these little kids? And she snickers at me. He replies, I'm trying to win them some stuffed animals. She then begins playing the claw on the other side of us so that my brother and I are sandwiched between these two strangers. His comment comes across as weird to me because previously I thought he was maybe trying to win something for his kids, but this entire time he'd just been following my brother and I from game to game, trying to win us toys. This has been going on for maybe 20 minutes at this point. They followed us to several different machines. And spent about five to six bucks in the process. Each time my brother and I switched machines, they'd follow. The hillbilly says to the lady, I'm out of money. You got any? She says, nah, I'm broke too. My brother says, I have a dollar still. Now, this is the part that really scared me. I remember listening to these two talk about some weird things with us, asking if I have a boyfriend, asking where we go to school, where our parents work, asking if we've ever done drugs, things like that. But when my brother said he had a dollar, she responded with the most terrifying thing I'd heard from them yet. The woman suddenly bursts out, Well, sh- Then give it to him, boy. Her face was red. The tone in which she shouted was so ear-piercing and gut-wrenching that I could feel the blood drain from my face. My brother looked like he was about to cry. He hands her the dollar and her face lights right up. She begins to laugh it off, almost like she's trying to make it seem like she was joking when she yelled at us. My father walks up a few moments later. As I turn to tell him that these people have spent close to $10 to win toys for us, they leave in a rush before he gets a good look at them. My dad is instantly livid. He takes us up to the front desk and tells them what I told him. They make an announcement on the PA to keep an eye out for these people and a report to an employee if they see them. Then they call the police. I don't actually remember this part, or much of anything after my father arrives, but this is what he told me. They never did find the couple. The police reviewed security cameras, too blurry to make out any physical details, and told my parents that the couple left the store immediately after my father showed up, without any groceries. Every time I see a man or woman in Walmart that looks as I remember them, I get anxiety and try to avoid them. So to the hillbilly couple lurking in Walmart, I hope to never, ever meet you again. A few weeks ago, a friend and I, both 24-year-old females, planned to go to an event together. Since we only had free time after work, we decided to grab an Uber so we wouldn't take too long to arrive and could enjoy the festivities a little bit more. The first half of the Uber ride was pretty normal. The driver seemed like a normal, polite dude, but as soon as we got to the highway, his attitude shifted. He seemed a lot more irritated, irrational. Me and my friend didn't pay much attention though, and kept chatting between us as we noticed the overall tone of the ride take a turn. Our attention was drawn when he started shouting with another driver. He turned to us and said that he was going to pull over for a moment. I tried objecting, but he ignored and pulled over anyway. When out of nowhere, he reaches for the glove compartment and pulls out a gun. It's important to note that guns are pretty much illegal in my country, and there are very few circumstances where an everyday citizen will just have one on them. Both my friend and myself were simply watching this unfold with bated breath. And when the other guy drove away, We let out an audible sigh of relief, but then we were still stuck in a car with a crazy man who had a gun. After this, he went back to driving and apologized to us, saying that the guy was tailgating him. I let out an oh, got it. He kept talking. That guy is lucky that you two girls are here, or else I would have followed him and shot him in the face. Sleazy idiot. I look over to my friend. She's in absolute shock and looks paralyzed with fear. I'm in shock too, but I'm trying to keep my cool because the last thing I want is to get him annoyed with us. If he was willing to shoot that guy for tailgating, I didn't want to know what he would do to us if I said the wrong thing. No, it's okay, I understand, I say trying to appease him. These guys need to be taught a lesson, he continued while I just agreed with my head nod. I did that before, you know. You just trap the guy in an empty street, and when he exits the car, bang. Did he just admit to murder was the only thing running through my mind at that point, but I managed to keep calm and agreed with him the rest of the way. He did deliver us to the right place with no further incidents. I waited a few weeks to report him to Uber since he had my home address and it wouldn't be hard to figure out who had reported him. Nobody has showed up to my home with a gun, at least yet, so I think I'm safe. And Uber has answered my report saying that they started an investigation into this driver. I just hope this guy doesn't do this to anyone else. Or worse. I'd like to share a story that happened to me when I was about 17. I'm 22 now, and before you part any judgement upon me, I just want you to think about what you were doing when you were a teenager, and reflect on that. There was an abandoned house between my town and the town next to me, on one of the country roads that connects us. I've been to it before, and even gone inside twice with my sister, and my best friend. It's an old house, dates back centuries according to the bank records that I was able to find, and you can just tell by the design that it's rather old. The house is two stories, with a basement, has a lot of furniture and objects strewn about inside, so it's far from empty. You can tell that it hasn't been lived in for decades, and whoever had it previously almost seemed like they just disappeared one day, leaving nearly everything behind. The way I was able to get in before was through a cellar door in the basement, which is broken open and propped up with some big sticks. My first visits were when I was sixteen, so maybe a year before this story takes place, but I hadn't gone back at all in that time. Another friend had expressed interest in seeing the house when I told him about my experience, so that summer I told him that I'd take him to see it. I never thought it was a dangerous trip and told him that it's just an interesting place to explore. We parked across the street from the house, in the parking lot of one of the industrial buildings nearby. The road was a rural road, but it was far from unused, and we didn't want to be questioned by anyone. My friend, being braver than me despite my previous visits, led the way across the street to the front of the house. He asked me a couple of questions about it, and what stuff I had found in there. I told him that the kitchen still had expired food in it, and that the upstairs had a board game set that I ended up bringing home with me. As we walked from the front of the house, to the side leading to the back with the cellar, I made note that there was a lot more brush than the last time I had visited. I had gone in the spring, and when I had gone with my sister and best friend, I never experienced the thick brush that I was now carefully plodding through. I made a comment to my friend that there was a lot more foliage than when I had gone before, as we both tried to figure out a path to the cellar. Eventually, we pushed through some branches, found the cellar door, broken and propped up just as I had last seen it. We talked for a second about being nervous, and I really took in the view of the cellar that led into this dark, abandoned house. I remember being really intimidated while looking at that opening. I made note that some of the sticks propping up in the cellar door didn't look familiar to me. I didn't state it out loud, however, as I thought it was just my anxiety. My friend and I discussed who should go first, and he said since I'm the expert, I should be the first one in. I was hesitant, but eventually, after a good five minutes of mental preparation, I started down the few steps of the cellar. It was an awkward entrance as half the cellar was collapsed and left little room for maneuvering. You had to duck under the part of the cellar door that was still put together, then inch your feet down the steps, finally turning your body sideways to fit through the small gap into the basement. I took a long time after ducking under the door, since my nerves came back for a second. I made it in fine, and my friend followed very quickly, which I appreciated. We both stood in the corner of the basement now, Taking it all in, I turned my phone's flashlight on, and he did the same. There was a spider web in the path to the stairs up to the first floor. I looked around, found some sort of tool to knock the spider web down, and I took the tool and swiped it through the web. After discarding the tool onto the concrete floor, my friend and I talked quietly for a moment. About what? I don't remember. But we fell silent for just a second. And above us, on the first floor, I clearly heard footsteps coming from above our heads. It almost seemed like they were heading to the stairs that led down to the basement. I remember this part the best, as I looked at my friend, and he didn't seem to react to the footsteps that I was hearing. I looked at him, suddenly feeling very worried, and before I could even say a word, he said, We need to go. He turned around and practically jumped up the stairs. I remember thinking he got out insanely fast. I could see him turn and reach his hand back to help me up. I was a bit slower than he, but I also quickly stepped up the stairs, and he pulled me right through the opening. I landed on my hands and knees after I escaped the cellar, and I immediately stood up facing the weeds. I turned around to my friend, who was crouched, staring down into the cellar. I said to him that we should get out of here, and he turned away and told me to go first through the weeds. I pretty much just hauled ass through the brush, definitely getting cut up by something, but we made it through them and back in front of the house very quickly. My friend kept urging me to go in front of him, and he watched behind us before switching to flashing his light in the windows on the first floor at the front of the house. I asked him what he was doing and if he was alright. He didn't really answer me at first, so I asked him if he heard the footsteps before we bolted from the basement. He turned to me and said that he heard them, and that's why he was watching the cellar, to see if anyone was following us out. He continued saying that after he pulled me up, he turned to guide me away before he let go of my hand, and when he turned back, he saw the bare feet of someone standing at the bottom of the cellar. Because of the dilapidated nature of the structure, he could only see their feet and part of their legs. At that point, that's when he told me to go through the weeds first. He never saw the person come up the cellar stairs or move away from them before he followed me. I didn't believe him at first and thought he was just trying to scare me, but I could tell by the serious tone of his voice and the silent look that he gave me after telling me that he wasn't trying to make me laugh or lighten the mood. I still asked if he was lying, and he aggressively said that he wasn't. He told me that I heard the footsteps already, so I knew something had to be in the house. We stood for a second, not really saying anything, before we both then agreed to go back across the street towards our cars. We stood by our rides for a while, watching the house to see if anything or anyone would come out, but nothing ever appeared. After talking for a bit about how crazy that was, and him reassuring me that he was telling the truth, it began to rain, and we decided to call it a night. I fully believe him though, he's always stood by what he saw, I haven't gone back to that house since, and I like to tell myself that whoever was in that house was just a person trying to find shelter, although I still get shivers to this day, thinking about how close that person was to me as I scrambled up from that cellar. Before I moved a few months ago, I was spending time with my younger sister, who had just turned 12. I'm 22 for reference. My sister has recently gotten into really girly things, like painting nails, doing glitter paintings of ponies. I'm not even kidding. One night, She asked me if she could paint my nails, which I agreed to, only we didn't have any nail polish in the house. Since it was fairly late at night, about 9pm, I decided to take her to the local 24-hour Walmart near our home. While at Walmart, I left my sister in the nail polish aisle and went literally one aisle over to grab some eyeliner from the makeup aisle. When I came back, I noticed my sister uncomfortably crouching near the nail polish while a teenage boy stood over her. This boy was around 17, maybe 18. Thin, blonde, unkempt looking. As I approached, I could hear him talking to my sister in a low voice. How old are you? Are you here by yourself? This might make more sense if my sister was a very young child, but she's definitely pre looking, not young enough to look like she's just lost in a store. I could see that she was staring at him, petrified, Strangers never just approach her out of nowhere and start talking to her. So I walked up and said, Hey, did you find what you wanted? While giving the teenager an unimpressed look. Instead of skedaddling, this guy turned and gave me an assessing stare right back. His eyes were very flat and still, but his mouth kept twitching into several versions of the same weird smile. I noticed that he had a really nasty scar on his throat, I stood next to my sister and waited for him to go, but instead he cooed to her. How old is your sister? Does she want to hang out too? Without saying a word, I pulled my sister away and we went to the other side of the store. I asked her who that guy was, and she said she had no idea. After a few minutes of shopping around, I had almost completely forgotten about the encounter until we came back outside of the parking lot. As I was loading our stuff into the car, I noticed the same teenager walk out of Walmart, pushing an empty shopping cart. I saw him glance around, just leave the shopping cart in the middle of the lot, which is a dick move by my account, and then run off to his car. I thought he was a weirdo and just didn't give any more thought to it. I had to go left when leaving the parking lot to get back home, but the street had a median so that turning left was impossible. And there were no U-turns allowed for a mile down the way. So I decided to take a right out of the parking lot, turn into a neighborhood, flip a UE there, and then head home. I hope that makes sense. As I was executing this stupidly complicated procedure in order to get us in the direction of home, I noticed a car tailing us out of the Walmart parking lot. It was the same car I had seen that teenager get into, which started to give me the creeps. I could see that there was only one person in the car, a man, so I'm 99% sure that it was him. By the time I turned into this random neighborhood, I was positive that he was genuinely following us. Just to be sure, I began speeding up. Sure enough, that car sped up too, to the point that we were both going 40-50 to in this residential neighborhood. I took six completely random turns just to confirm that this person was really following Most of these turns were made at the last minute, no blinker, and he stayed right on my tail, matching my speed, taking every turn that I did. I told my little sister to dial 911 and press call if this guy kept following us. Luckily, we weren't in our actual neighborhood, but then I realized that with all of the random turns, I'd actually managed to get kind of lost and couldn't remember where the exit to the main road was. Meanwhile, this guy was speeding up so much so that he was nearly hitting the back of my car. He starts laying into the horn. Long honks that shattered the silence of this dark, empty neighborhood. I couldn't fathom why he would do that, since he probably woke up all of the people that we drove past. I had no idea what to do. I was lost. I didn't know where the neighborhood exit was. And I was just helplessly circling around this place while some creep-tailed the shit out of me the guy unrolled his window and began to wave at us not frantic hey stop wait kind of waves either but taunting tootaloo waves i was dumbfounded i remember uttering to my sister what the fuck it all ended when another car turned onto the same street we were zooming down so that they weren't directly behind me he slowed down for some reason while i sped ahead and i managed to get to the neighborhood exit and back onto the main road before he could catch up. By the time I made it home a few miles away, there was no sign of him. My sister and I didn't speak of the incident again, but it's always really bothered me. He was probably just some asshole teenager looking to scare a girl and her kid sister because he had nothing better to do. But I really can't think of why he would act in such a way. My sister said she was at the same Walmart with my mom and thought she saw him hanging around the makeup department once more. But luckily, he didn't see her. Maybe he only zeroes in on the girls that he thinks are alone. Anyway, this whole teenager who creeps on preteen girls, let's not meet again. But if we do, I'll probably try to hurt you. I'm normally a nighttime walker. Because I have a cat that roams as well. I sometimes like to make sure he's okay or that the roads are clear. I don't want to get into more details about my cat being outdoors, but I do come from a toxic, abusive family dynamic, and they don't allow him inside. I'm also on disability, so yeah, I'm a loser still living at home. Anyway, I'm 36 years old, and I make sure I'm aware of my surroundings, and I take precautions when I'm walking. I've had random stop and ask me questions, but never experienced something like this. So I walk out at midnight, I normally do a brisk walk, and I'm fine. But this time, as I'm reaching the end of the street, and I'm turning back to walk back home, a man in a big white van stops, and asks me a question. He asks, Ma'am, what are you doing out here? Why are you out so late? I say that I'm walking back home. He then proceeds to suggest that I take a lift home from him because he doesn't want to see me walk home alone late at night. I decline his request and tell him to leave me alone, that I can walk home safely if he carries on driving. So he drives his van, but then makes a U-turn back to where I'm walking, as if to watch me on my path home, perhaps looking to see where home is. I stop walking waiting for him to go past, but he doesn't. He stops his van. He leans out the window and says to me that he just wants me to get home safe and again requests me to get in his van. Once more, I declined. Now I'm getting pretty angry. I tell him to stop following me home. I'm a woman and I won't show you where I live. He then drives off, but slowly, steadily creeping down the street when he pulls off to the side of the road at the stop sign at the end of the block. I decide to take a U-turn and run into one of the roads where I can hide. He doesn't show up, and I think he's gone. So when I come out of hiding, I walk slowly just in case I were to see him. I then see a car's headlights approaching around the bend as I quickly jump into this arrangement of big plants on the sidewalk. I easily duck down, and the driver couldn't see me but I saw his white van driving real slow past me. As he turned onto the road that I had just come from, he then makes a U-turn, and goes back the way that he came from. I waited a while longer, I felt like a cat at the moment, hiding, waiting for a safe time to emerge once more. Finally, the coast was clear, and I couldn't see his van anywhere, so that's when I made a run for home. Thank goodness I made it home safe and sound. I made sure to look around me, and in the shadows to see if he parked his van anywhere, but I didn't see it. I don't know who that man was, and whether he was really looking out for my safety, although I doubt that. Emerging from nowhere after midnight, in a vehicle that we've all been trained not to get into? Yeah, I'm glad that I passed on that ride. For anyone soon to suggest that this man was just a good Samaritan, looking out for my well-being? well You weren't in my shoes that night, you didn't feel what I felt, and I have to remind you what our parents told all of us growing up, never get into a car with a stranger. I work as a child care professional, and one of the kids that I look after has recently gotten into hiking. I decided to take him to a really cool trail in Salt Fork State Park. We were all set to hike to Hossack's Cave after parking right near the beginning of the trailhead. The entire trail is about half of a mile, which is why I chose this trail for our hike that day. I also chose this trail because any time that I had been on it before, it was very busy and full of people, a very popular spot which made me feel secure. However, this past summer, we had a cluster of severe storms, which caused massive damage to the trail. So to my surprise, it was much more difficult and completely empty when we got there. I wasn't bothered by the trail being obviously empty, because there was a small construction crew working on a bridge that was just barely visible from the trailhead. He was still up for the hike, despite the entire width of the trail being washed out, until it was no more than a foot wide wide with a 6-12 to foot drop-off into a creek bed that was solid rock and several downed trees. He's a very athletic kid, and I was confident in his abilities, if he was, and he was so excited to tackle our adventure. We made it all the way to a platform that allows you to see the entire cave. There were many downed trees surrounding the platform, and it was actually closed at this point, but we had made it this far, so we decided to maneuver around the platform and proceeded the few hundred feet into the cave. We spent the most time in this area due to the difficulty, so I know exactly what it looked like. There were tree roots directly under the platform, and you could climb down either side of them. It's also worth noting that Hossack's Cave is much more like a cliff, with an overhanging rock formation and a trickle of a waterfall directly in the middle. It's not a creepy closed-up cave by any means. It's very open and rather beautiful. When we reached the cave, I noticed a candle that was not burning recently, but had been at some point, sitting on a large rock that had a heart carved into it. I chalked it up to someone having a date or something and disregarded it. He wanted to climb to the top, where I noticed two more candles and three stacks of small rocks that had been stacked up by somebody. I definitely felt weird at this point, but it was about this time that he found a small puddle full of baby salamanders and wanted to catch them. It was the happiest that I'd seen him in a very long time, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that it was time to go. We spent about an hour catching baby salamanders, and I watched him have the time of his life. We finally decided to leave, and when we got to the platform, dead center in the middle of the tree roots, was a wet washcloth hanging that was absolutely not there before. He noticed it as well, but didn't pick up on the severity of the situation that we were now in. At that moment, I factually knew two things. One, someone was watching us, and we didn't see them. Two, they were now potentially hiding in the woods, and made it a point not to be seen, but to leave an object to be noticed. There was no running back with the narrow trail, and I was not about to tell him that we were in potential danger. I told him to go in front of me, and I just kept encouraging him that he was doing great over and over, and that seemed to speed him up naturally. I never saw anyone while we were on the trail. We got to the car, and I locked the doors immediately. On our way out of the park, a very dirty man, probably in his 30s, came out of the woods and made a point to stare at me with the most empty expression that I've ever seen. The man followed me with his eyes and head as I drove by him, and continued to stare at me until I couldn't see him anymore. I knew the third fact at that point. He made it a point to make himself apparent to me, and the facts one and two were absolutely true. That stare stuck with me for days, and I considered counseling after this, as it bothered me for several weeks, causing bouts of severe anxiety. I try to tell myself that maybe we just interrupted his bath time and he was camping and didn't want to startle us. After all, the crazy looking man had ample time to do anything that he wanted while we were catching those salamanders. I just cannot in any way rationalize why he stared into my eyes the way that he did if he wanted to go unnoticed. Deep down, I know that it is much more likely that it was a deliberate action intended to scare me. The kid I was with never had any idea how panicked I was, and to this day, it is the most fun that I've ever seen him have. He brings it up regularly, and it was a very positive experience for him. But for me, it was one of the worst experiences ever, and it makes me feel so sick and disturbed to this day. I'm a 20-year-old female, and I can't really make sense of this situation, even now. This happened this past Saturday, and I'm only just now feeling comfortable enough to talk about it. I spent the night out with my older sister and a couple of her friends. All we really did was go out for a meal and then take a walk in the city. Nothing crazy. Some of the group of people had to leave for one reason or another, so I decided to call it a night. I had texted one of my guy friends, and asked if he wanted to come over and watch a movie with me, to which he said yes. We went our separate ways I met up with my friend outside of my apartment. To add just a little bit of context, my apartment is one single building with a backyard space that's shared with two other similar-styled apartments. That may be important in a bit. When I pulled up, there was a car that parked across the street. I didn't think much of it, I assumed it was there for one of the neighbors maybe. I went and changed while my friend scrolled Netflix for a movie to watch. As I'm leaving the bedroom, I hear a knock at the door. I'll admit, this next part was incredibly stupid on my part. My area doesn't have many issues, so I certainly let my guard down. Roast me if you must. I open the door to see a guy standing there. I'm a measly five foot four, and he was at least a head taller than me. He didn't look anything out of the ordinary, though. Mid to late 20s, brown hair, fully groomed beard, moderately dressed. He asked where my sister was. I told her that I didn't have a sister. Lie. He then asked for her by name. I told him again that he was mistaken. Not only did he address her by name and ask for her again, but he mentioned that he followed her from the place we had just left, and he just wanted to see her. Absolutely not. Nothing about this sat right with me. I started to close the door, but he walked up and physically prevented me from doing so. Mama didn't raise no punk though, so I planted my hands into his chest and pushed him backwards, which achieved nothing at all. He then started calling her name very loudly and continued trying to make his way past me. I yelled at him to leave and stood my ground the best that I could. He ended up shoving me aside, but before he could get past me, My friend pushed him against the wall and hit him in the face. After that, he booked it out the door and into the parked car across the street. My friend pulled the door closed, locked it, then helped me up, moving me into the bedroom while he went to make sure that the guy left. I called the police and filed a report immediately. Also, and this is the stupidity that I mentioned earlier, I have a Ring doorbell camera. I should have just gauged him from inside the house and not open the door at all. Carelessness got the better of me in that instant, and I'm still kicking myself over it. This could have ended a lot worse. I showed my sister his picture, and she has no recollection of who he is, though she said that he looked somewhat familiar. The only theory that I have as to why he followed me is the fact that I accidentally left that night while wearing my sister's jacket. So here are my divided thoughts. one. She somehow developed a stalker that mistook me for her when I was leaving. She's a hairstylist and part-time waitress, so this could easily bring people into her presence that she wouldn't remember. Two, she may know who it is, but doesn't want to say a thing. Don't know why this crossed my mind. Paranoia, maybe. Either way, I'm glad that night didn't devolve into anything worse, and please believe I don't open that door for anybody without checking that camera anymore. This story has been with me for a long, long time, but I've just now gotten comfortable enough to share it. It's something that has truly stuck with me for over a decade now. My family and I are from Australia, and back in 2007, we decided to take a month-long holiday to America. We traveled from L.A., up the West Coast, and then back down through Nevada. We did this by renting a car and doing the whole vacation, road trip style. One night, we were traveling towards Lompoc and stopped in Santa Barbara for the night to sleep. We drove around a while looking for a decently priced motel that wasn't to bring your own UV light, if you know what I mean. My mom and dad found a place that looked okay and went inside to inquire about the price of a room for the night while my sister and I stayed in the car and listened to music on our iPods. We were bopping along to the Frey album I had bought the other day when my sister removed her headphones and said, Look at mom. What is she doing? I look up out the window and can see into the reception area of the motel. I see my dad talking to the manager and my mom displaying very cold and odd body language for her. She's usually very friendly with staff everywhere, so this was just odd. What's wrong with her? I said to my sister, as we kept a close eye on them and the situation. My mom was standing behind my dad with her arms crossed and looking around the place as if she was on guard for something, as if her hypervigilant senses had just kicked in. After some time, my mom and dad get back in the car and discuss what to do about staying the night. My dad stated we wouldn't find anywhere cheaper for the night, and he was hungry and ready for dinner, so we better just stay here. Plus, it was the last room available, so we would have to make a decision quick. To his dismay, my mom disagreed. I don't like this place. I have a really bad feeling, said my mom. My dad argued on, getting more and more irritated that my mom couldn't explain what she didn't like about the place, until my mom finally snaps. yells over my dad, saying, we are not staying here. Fucking hell. Fine. My dad says as he starts the car and backs out of the motel driveway. At this point, my sister and I are just looking at each other like, what just happened? But we stay quiet as mom seems on edge. Anyway, we end up finding a place to stay that mom approved of and hunkered down for the night. In the morning, We're all bustling around the motel room getting ready for the day when my dad turns up the TV to hear a news story about a shooting at a motel right down the way. You guessed it. It was at the motel that my mom didn't want us to stay at. Turns out, about 15 minutes after we left, a couple walks in and books the last available room. There was a man behind them in line that shot them because they took that room. We all turn to look at my mom who is standing there wide-eyed at this point, watching the TV in horror. She says, I told you I had a bad feeling about that place, directly to my dad who was pretending not to listen. The moral of this story is, always trust your gut, or better yet, always trust your mom's gut. When I was 21, I transferred to a college in San Francisco, California. I checked out a room for rent on Craigslist. It was in a really nice two-bedroom apartment. It was cheap rent, close to campus, so it was the ideal spot for me. The girl who lived there, my roommate, was 29, and her name was Beth. She was tall and wide, had jet black hair, and wore pale makeup. She seemed nice, although a little quiet. But she seemed to like me and agreed to let me move in. So far, so good. My first night there, we went out for pizza, and that's when I could tell that something was a little bit off with her. Throughout dinner, she kept telling me how much I looked like Shia LaBeouf. I didn't know what to say, so I just shrugged it off with a thanks. I mean, I look nothing like Shia LaBeouf. So it just didn't make much sense to me at all when we got back home she asked if i had seen her room yet i said no so she took me to see it her walls were covered in posters of shia labeouf she even had printed out photos of him all over her mirror she owned all of his movies i didn't know what to make of it but it was downright creepy the whole night she had been saying that i look like him and now it's obvious to me that she's obsessed with the guy A few weeks passed from then, and I never really saw her that much. We didn't spend any time together, really. She would come home from work and practically run to her room. She would spend the whole night in there. She had this creepy, high-pitched giggle, and I would hear her giggling through the walls all night. I wondered what the hell she could possibly be doing in there. Occasionally, she would come out and talk for like two minutes, and she would always be slurring her words so I suspected that she was drinking a lot. Sometimes she wouldn't say anything and would just stand in the hallway and watch me in the living room. I would turn and see her, be surprised, and say, hello Beth, and then there would be this long, awkward pause and she would give out her creepy high-pitched giggle. It was uncomfortable being around her. She gave me the chills. One night, I woke up around 2 a.m. because I heard what sounded like the front door being unlocked. I came out of my bedroom, and all the lights were off, but I could still see Beth standing in front of the door. She had her face against it, and she was turning the lock back and forth, over and over again. Every time she turned the bolt, she mumbled my name. Max Barker. Max Barker. Max Barker. Seeing her stand in the dark and mumbling my name really freaked me out, and it doesn't help that she kinda looks like a bigger version of the girl from The Ring. I just quietly crept back to my room and tried to sleep. One night, I was watching Gladiator, and she stumbled out of her room, turned on the living room light, forcing me to pause the movie, which was annoying in and of itself. She then asked me if I wanted to hear about her ex-boyfriend. It was an uneasy segue into the topic, but I just said sure, and then awkwardly sat back to listen to her. Ten minutes into her story, and she was so riled up. She was screaming at the top of her lungs about their breakup. I was worried that the neighbors were going to call the cops. And she ignored me every time I asked her to lower the volume. Amidst all of her screaming, one thing she said really freaked me out. She was in an absolute fit, and yelled, i slit his f***ing throat. That was a big game changer for me. Suddenly I had no idea what this girl was capable of. She was practically a stranger, and everything I had seen was becoming alarmingly disturbing. After a few more minutes, she told me thanks for listening, and she began doing her giggle. I got out of there pretty fast, went to my room to go to sleep. I had a pretty unsettled feeling about being in the house with her, and what's worse... There was no lock on my bedroom door. I pushed the edge of my dresser in front of it to act as a small barricade. I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of my dresser scraping against the floor. Beth was trying to push the door open. I turned on my light, shouting at her to stop. I could see her through the opening of the door. She was so drunk and had this insane look in her eyes. I pushed the door closed and yelled at her to go to bed. I could hear her walk back to her room, but there was no way that I was going to fall back asleep that night. The next morning, when I went out into the hallway, my heart dropped. I saw one of her steak knives was on the floor by my door. I got goosebumps all over my body. All I could think about was her saying she would slit that guy's throat. I confronted her about it, and she said she didn't remember trying to push my door open. She said she didn't even remember telling me about her ex. I had had enough. My lease was month to month, so I found a new spot and moved out. About a month after I moved, she contacted me. I was at the movies, and my phone was off. But when I got out, and had turned my phone back on, I was shocked to see that I had received 40 plus text messages over the past two hours from her. They were all just insane texts that ranged from everything between, Hey, how are you? two, I f***ing hate you. It was insane. I didn't respond to a single one, and I never heard from her again. I always find myself wondering, though, if I hadn't set my dresser in front of my door, would she have quietly come into my room and slit my throat? It freaks me out just thinking about it. So my fiancé and I had been on the lookout for a kitten to accompany our three-month-old cat that we already have. We searched and searched, until one day he said to me, Let's look on Craigslist. So I did. We found the perfect one. The only problem was that it was about two and a half hours away from our home. I inquired about it around 10.30pm. I know it was late, but almost immediately, I got a response. She sounded very nice over text, and asked to see where I lived so that she would feel settled about the kitten living with us. She also insisted on going to their house. I know, I should have just dropped it then. At the time, I thought nothing of it though. So I sent them a video, and we set up a time for the next day to meet. Next day came. I wasn't going to take my fiancé, but he insisted on coming with me, because, as we all know, Craigslist is rather sketchy. So we drove the 150 miles on our way there. As we were on our way, I was texting this girl that we would get there on time, and she responded with, Great, see you then. We arrived to the home, me in the driver's seat, my fiancé and the passenger, with his window down. I texted the girl and got no response. I called, got the same. I ended up calling five times and texting in the course of an hour. With zero response. I went up to the house, knocked on the door, but nothing once again. There was a car in the driveway, but no response from the number or the door. We got there at 6.30 and waited till damn near 8. Nothing. The neighbor came out asking if there was something wrong. I said that I'm here since I inquired about a kitten, and she said, A kitten? I said yes, there was an ad on Craigslist. The woman said, no one has kittens in this home though. I showed her the ad and she said, oh, I know them. They're a pretty odd couple and they don't own any cats. I just helped them move their furniture yesterday. So I said, well, on their ad, it says that they have to get rid of the kittens since their new place doesn't allow pets. So the neighbor said, "Mm, that's impossible. I have a dog and so does the neighbor over there. We pretty much all have pets. I immediately found this creepy, thinking that the neighbor was also in on something, which then caused a feeling of anxiety. I thanked her and left along with my fiancé. Literally, ten seconds after pulling off, I get a text from the girl saying, I'm just now getting your messages. Something must be wrong with my phone. Did you still want the kitten? Or no? I didn't answer. We just headed back home. What I don't quite understand is... They didn't get any money, they didn't ask for any money, but they asked me to show up knowing that I'd be with my fiancé. I had a bad feeling about it, but what did they want from me? This started back in the summer of 2013. I had just turned 24, about a year out of graduate school, and back living in California in my childhood home, with my father and our dog. My days were mainly spent applying for jobs in the mornings, sending out my resume and cover letter online, and then heading over to a park for a vigorous workout in the afternoon. I found that keeping to this schedule was most productive for me. I live in an upper-middle-class area of a large city, in an area with no sidewalks, neighborhood walks, or jogs were out of the question. I was pretty allergic to the grass at a really nice neighborhood park that's about a 5-minute drive from my house, so nearly daily I'd make the trek to a much larger park about 20 minutes from my house and in a slightly more questionable part of the city. It provided a really nice jogging track and beautiful, peaceful scenery, including a man-made lake and various species of birds. I kept firm to this daily schedule during the weekdays, giving myself a break on weekends, Being that my visits were during the daytime on weekdays in the summer, the park was mainly inhabited by older, senior citizens, mothers with young children, and middle and high school age kids on vacation. Although I usually visited the park around the same time each day, I never really picked up on seeing the same people there. The park was quite large, and I really like how uncongested the jogging path around man-made lake was. Also, even though the park was in a slightly less nice part of town, I never felt nervous or in danger in any way. There were always enough people around, and I never went off into any desolate parts of the park. As a child, I was always taught to be very aware of my surroundings, and I usually pick up on details where things seem wrong or suspicious. I never felt this way on my workouts. I kept to myself, worked out hard, and then would leave. On August 24th, which happened to be a Saturday, I was at home perusing the misconnections section of Craigslist, which I do sometimes for a laugh when I'm bored. In the M4W section, I saw a post entitled, I have to tell the woman I see walking, with the posted location as the exact city in which the park I walked is located. I opened the post, it was rife with spelling and grammatical errors, but this person essentially described me, my workout clothing, my appearance the basic description of the park, what time I'd come to the park, etc. Down to details including the particular sunglasses and color sneakers that I'd wear. He mentioned that he wanted to know more about me and felt a connection. As I said, I never noticed anyone in particular at the park and certainly no one who had seemingly been watching me. I was very, very creeped out. But also, and I hate to admit this, curious as to who this was and how he knew all of these details. My next step was clear. I was way too curious. I created a throwaway Gmail account and replied to this stranger's post on Craigslist. Not expecting a direct response, I was surprised when one came in almost immediately. I asked him several questions, including the specific park to which he was referring and who he was. I was almost expecting this person to just be playing some sort of prank. He answered immediately. He was in fact referring to the park I visited, identified himself as Mike, and then did something so incredibly scary, I just couldn't believe it. He attached about 7 images that he had taken of me, jogging and walking around this park, spanning from months earlier to just a few days previous. The pictures were classic stalker-style photos, sort of grainy and clearly taken by a cell phone. He asked, Is this you? I was starting to panic at this point. I thought that I needed to play it cool. I wanted to try to collect as much information as I could about this man, and try to find out who he was, without revealing too much about myself in the process. I never confirmed or denied that the images were of me, but pressed on as to who he was, what he looked like, etc. He described himself to me as a 33-year-old ex-military man. About six foot one, in shape, with short dark brown hair, olive skin, and some very distinctive tattoos. He mentioned that he worked in an office building near the park, and often took his dog there for walks on his lunch break. He continued that he was sure that he had caught my attention several times, and that I would definitely recognize him if I saw him. He eerily stated, And when I run, I slow down to look at you. I was trying to scan my brain to see if I had ever seen someone who matched that description and I really could not remember anyone. Hoping for nothing pornographic, I asked for a picture of his face. About 30 minutes later, I got three of them. I opened up the images and clearly they were of three different men, none of them really matching the description of himself that he had provided. A quick Google reverse image search confirmed that he had sent me fake pictures and of three different men entirely. Two of them seemed randomly chosen as if he had stolen photos from Facebook or something like that, but the other was, very alarmingly, a photo taken from an online memorial website of an ex-military man who had died under suspicious circumstances several years back. Now I was agitated that this creep was playing games. I called him out on the sending of fake photos, and he replied with his phone number, begging me to call him so that he could explain. I now had another piece of evidence on the creep. Full of both adrenaline and fear, I googled the phone number, which gave me his full name, address, and age. His name was in fact Mike, but he was 42, not 33, and he lived with his mother. He lived fairly close to the park. I also searched for any prior arrests or evidence of a criminal history, but to no avail. Being slightly too curious at this point, I decided that I would call him from my home number, which is blocked, and would not show up on his cell phone. He picked up, and I could immediately tell that he was in fact much older than he initially claimed. I called him on this as well. He denied it, until he broke down and admitted that he was 40, but not 42. He said he didn't want to admit that he was quote, old. I then called him out on the fake photos. He claimed that the images were real and then insisted two of the photos were friends of his and the other was his brother. He made up a complete story of the photo of his supposed brother as well, which I knew was fake because his real last name, which I learned from the online records, and the name of the man who had died under suspicious circumstances were not nearly the same. Many other details didn't match up either. At my insistence, he finally emailed me what he claimed to be a real image of himself. The man in the photo appeared older portly, and what could only really be described as greasy, sleazy, and guido-esque. This creep would not stop talking about himself, bragging about his cars, money, vacation homes, designer clothing. Then, like a switch, he got really creepy. He began to get explicit, talking about how he loves watching women work out in tight, spandex clothing, and how he likes watching really young women exercise. I don't exactly remember how, but I got off the phone and made up some excuse as to why I couldn't text. I obviously didn't want him having my phone number. Before I hung up, he mentioned that he was meeting some friends at a Mexican restaurant slash bar, which was somewhat close to the park that I visited. At this point, I call up a close older male friend of mine, we'll call him Bobby, who is a super intelligent, professional lawyer, he's always been a confidant of mine, a true friend almost an older brother. I told Bobby the whole story, and he was just as freaked as I was. Perhaps we were both too curious to figure out exactly who this creep was, but we hatched a plan to stake out this bar restaurant, which was pretty close to Bobby's house as well, just to see if Mike would ever show up. The area was heavily trafficked, and we assumed the restaurant would be very busy on a Saturday night, so we were none too worried. Since hanging up with Mike... He had made more repeated attempts to engage in conversation with me over email, although I never responded. I drove to Bobby's house, left my car in his driveway, and Bobby drove us to the vicinity of the bar. The plan was for me to wait in the car, which was parked around the corner from the bar, while Bobby would casually go inside, order a drink, and see if he saw Mike. I had shown Bobby the real photo that Mike had sent me earlier. I definitely didn't want to go in myself. I didn't want to see the man, and confirmed to him that it was me, the girl who he had stalked and photographed for months, who he had found, spoken to on the phone, and now was laying eyes on in person. So, bad idea or not, I stayed in the car. I was filled with anxiety, trying to stay calm, my mind moving a million miles a second. Maybe around a half an hour later, Bobby left the restaurant and hopped into the car. He seemed shaken, and just not himself. He insisted we drive around a little and not go back to his house directly. Bobby is always calm and level-headed, so it was unusual to see him like this. When we finally stopped killing time and driving around, we went back to his house and began to talk. This is when he told me the whole story. Bobby, as planned, had walked into the Mexican restaurant, got a seat at the bar. Surprisingly, it just wasn't as crowded as expected and it was starting to clear out. Bobby said that what seemed to be a large birthday party was leaving, and he was told that the kitchen was closing, and there were only a few patrons left in the bar. Shortly after he ordered a beer from the bartender, a single man came up and sat right next to him and began making small talk. This was odd to me, because in the city where we live, strangers pretty much keep to themselves. It wasn't like this man was drunk and being super friendly either. Bobby said that the man was completely sober, didn't even appear to be drinking. Bobby told me that the man resembled the real photo that Mike had sent over email, almost like an aged has-been actor or an older, out-of-shape former bodybuilder, and that this man then began gloating about his money, cars, houses, just as Mike had done earlier on the phone. Bobby said that the conversation was absolutely one-sided, only managing to eke in a, wow, or a, oh really, in an as enthusiastic as he could fib tone. Then, Bobby told me, like nothing, the man just started ranting and raving, getting visibly angry over how he couldn't meet any decent women. Bobby's older brother and mother sadly suffer from mental illness, he's been around it his whole life, and pretty aware of it when he encounters it in the wild. Bobby told me that the man was clearly ill, as he went on and on about how he, watches women, but that things never get anywhere until he takes things into his own hands. Looking back, we both concluded that Mike was probably referring to coercing or forcing women into situations with violence. I was completely sickened at this point and felt like I really dodged a bullet. Bobby, utterly disgusted and having heard enough at this point, told me that he calmly acted like he was tired, paid for his beer and got up from the bar stool to walk out back to his car and me then bobby told me the worst part that honestly still freaks me out to this day as he was putting his wallet back into his jeans mike leaned in super close and told him and what bobby said was a calm yet somewhat sneering tone you can tell your friend i'll be waiting for her at the park on monday bobby had never ever mentioned me or any of the situation to mike and I had never mentioned any of my personal life, including my name, social networks, friends, or any of the like to Mike. After this, I stopped going to that park and tried to forget about the whole incident. Mike continued emailing me for a fair amount of weeks, alternating between seeming desperation, yelling at me, being intensely sexual, and creepy stalkerish. I never replied. I figured that Mike was truly mentally disturbed and would eventually leave me alone as long as I didn't provoke. I've dealt with some stalker situations before and really didn't feel like getting my dad involved and going through everything with the police, etc. Also I didn't feel like Mike was too big of a threat. I mean, he didn't have my real name, my real email address, any of my phone numbers. I figured that as long as I avoided that park, I would be fine. Months went by and I stopped checking my fake email. Started a new job, and pretty much forgot all about Mike. Got a new cell phone, new cell phone number, completely unrelated to the Mike issue. I only gave my number out to my dad, new boss, and a small handful of lifelong friends. I was very careful and more guarded than ever due to this incident. I also never picked up blocked or private numbers on my cell. But then, on November 26th, while at work, I got five calls on my cell phone in rapid succession, from blocked numbers, along with five corresponding voicemails, followed immediately by a call from a number that I didn't recognize. No voicemail on that one. Once at home that night, I remembered the calls and played the voicemails. The content was extremely unsettling. The man on the other end of the phone repeated the lyrics to the song Me So Horny by Two Live Crew in various accents said my name multiple times, and followed that with some muffled things that sounded somewhat like threats, or other general harassment. He also seemed to have great difficulty in hanging up the phone, which made me laugh. Then I googled the phone number that called me immediately after the five blocked calls and voicemails, whom I assumed was the same person. I stopped. Yep, it was Michael S., or Mike as I had known him. I'm pretty sure he called five times blocking his number, and then accidentally called again, forgetting to block his number that time, and hanging up once he realized his blunder. To conclude, I have no idea how he got my new cell phone number, my name, or anything. I can conclude that he may have picked up my name from listening in on a phone call of mine at the park months before, seeing as he was insane and unstable enough to think that photographing and stalking women in a public park was acceptable behavior. I wouldn't put listening into conversations or spying past him either. But how he got my cell number is completely unexplainable. We have no mutual friends, and as I said before, I took strong precautions in not revealing any of my personal information to him. I have since blocked his number, and thankfully nothing has happened since that point. So I finally felt a bit more comfortable in sharing this scary Scary story. I hope I've not left out any details, although I may have. It's taken me a lot to sit down and write out this whole thing, so thank you for listening. I was working on a no budget film, a really trashy script, weird plot, no redeeming values at all. Toward the end of production, Me and the director were going around getting second unit inserts. We were on 59th Street at 6am on Sunday morning, unloading the camera. We were going up to a penthouse he knew of to get a shot looking down into Central Park. No one knew about the film other than the production crew and actors. It would never, ever have been mentioned in any social media. So the director and I are unloading. There's no one around, except for one homeless man. He's shuffling along the sidewalk, heading in our general direction. He's one of the sad, mentally ill people that our society refuses to help, so his schizophrenia is untreated, and he's out on the streets, and he's talking to himself nonstop as he comes along. When he gets close to us, he stares directly at us and says, And here are those guys that are making that movie about dot dot dot, and he proceeds to rattle off the entire plotline. As he walks past just as if he were reading the imdb synopsis none of our equipment was even visible so there was no way that anyone would recognize us as a film crew the director and i just looked at each other confused with a similar look of what just happened on our faces no further explanation from the man as he shuffled away but he absolutely left us wondering what that was in his wake This video is brought to you in partnership with Careerist. If you're anything like me, you're always looking to better yourself, learn something new, try something different. When that feeling extends to honing a new and rewarding set of skills that may lead to a very fine paycheck, well, that's where Careerist comes in. Careerist is an online learning platform that can teach you how to develop your own websites, create apps, test the software that powers those websites, and utilize those skills to implement computer systems for large companies. Skilled careerist advisors will help you choose your path of study, help you to find 100% remote internships when your course is completed, provide one-on-one mentorship along the way, in addition to assisting in your dream job search. What's more, most courses can be completed in under six months. As a very special promotion, sign up through the link on screen and get up to $250 off the course of your choosing and start your journey towards an exciting and rewarding future today. When I was 11, I'm 40 now. I moved in with my best friend Charlotte and her family. My family and I were not getting along so well. So Charlotte's mom, Mercy, let me live with them for a few months. I stayed in Charlotte's room And the two of us would get up every day, make our lunches, and head off to school. We lived in the nicer part of a poor neighborhood. Mercy worked full-time, and Charlotte's dad, well, he wasn't on the scene. Charlotte's brother Dallas was two years older than us, and the self-proclaimed man of the house. He had a whole stack of friends, whose home situations were similar to mine, so it wasn't uncommon for the house to be full of teenagers by the time Mercy got home from work. Dallas' girlfriend lived next door. I never met her, but I remember there were always people coming and going from her house as well. Around this time, Dallas lost his front door key, and we'd start noticing that food would go missing in certain instances of things not being where we thought we had left them. One day, Charlotte and I came home from school and headed to our room to drop our school bags off. We noticed that we each had an envelope on our pillows. At first... Both of us thought that Dallas had decided to write us notes about how he thought we were ugly or smelly, you know, harmless big brother type teasing. My envelope had a drawing on the front that I didn't quite understand. I remember opening it and finding a letter inside. Charlotte passed me hers. Though the handwriting was messy, the letter told her how pretty she was. We both knew that there was no way these letters were from Dallas. That said, I didn't want to give her mine. The author of mine detailed how they were going to come in the house and whip me to death. And to ensure I understood, I realized that the strange picture on the front of my envelope was a crude drawing of somebody being assaulted in a very vile manner. Terrified, we called Mercy and told her what had happened, and she in turn called the police. When Dallas came home from school, we took the letters to show him and explained just how we found them. He came up to our room to look around and examine our beds and belongings. Dallas called all of his friends over and interrogated them in his mom's room with the door closed. Once he was satisfied it was none of them, he showed them the letters to see if they recognized anything familiar about them. Then they went out to ask the neighbors if they'd seen or heard anything out of the usual. They never found out exactly who left those envelopes, and the police said that there was nothing that they could do. I don't think Charlotte or I slept much for a week after that. When some of Charlotte's and Dallas's clothes showed up on a washing line at his girlfriend's house, we figured he must have lost his keys while visiting her, and that someone there had been coming over during the day to eat our food and steal our things. We changed the locks, and nothing else out of the ordinary happened. I was so scared and so angry. Every time people went over to her house, I wondered if it had been them, if they were the ones who snuck into Charlotte's room and delivered those foul letters to us. Needless to say, I was quite happy when that family moved away and took the regular riffraff with them. When I was younger, my family and I had a caravan in a holiday park in New South Wales, Australia. We would go there every school holiday, and there were many kids I used to run around and play with. I have fond memories of this place, where I learned to ride a bike, and even had my first kiss. But other memories are not so good, and now leave me with that egg-flip feeling in my stomach. The people that owned the caravan park had a son. He was roughly 25 years old, and I would have been around 5 or 6 at this time. He would drive around the park and collect everyone's rubbish on a tractor and do other odd jobs like this to help out his parents. Every once in a while, he would pull up when I was playing out in the front and ask if I wanted to ride on the tractor. I, being young and naive, of course accepted and jumped right on, because what child doesn't want to ride on a tractor? This was back in the days where parents would let their children play in the streets without much supervision, and he just came back home when the street lights came on. One day, when he dropped me back to our van, My dad came storming out, grabbed me by the arm and yanked me off the tractor. Without saying a word to the man, he took me inside and told me to never, ever hang out with him again. I don't want you hanging around with that man again, he said without saying why. But he's nice. He gives me candy, I say. Just don't. I'm telling you, don't talk to him, my father replied. I couldn't understand why my dad didn't want me talking to this nice man who only gives me tractor rides, gives me the occasional lollipop, and sometimes splits his sandwich with me. I remember telling the man one day, my dad said I'm not allowed to talk to you anymore, to which he smirked and replied, oh yeah? Why is that? Fast forward nearly 13, maybe 14 years later, my family and I are gathered around the TV, watching the news, when the picture of a man flashes across the screen attached to a story where he had killed two people, and is now serving time in prison. Well, wouldn't you know, it was the tractor man's face, aged by a decade, and probably some poor life choices. My father looked at me and said, look at this, I knew he was bad news, there was always just something about him. Do you remember when he used to take you around on the tractor? That never sat right with me. My blood ran cold and my stomach dropped. The most disturbing part, he killed people with pills he would call his lollipops. Please always listen to your parents. My god, I fear I would be dead by now if it weren't for them. I was 12 years old at the time of this story, in the sixth grade and living in the south. At that time, the town's population was around 20,000 but when the local university was in session, it would nearly double that. It wasn't a place where everyone inevitably knew everyone else, but if you played 20 questions with each other, you could undoubtedly find people you both knew. My single mother and I lived in an apartment downtown and had been there for around eight months. It was summertime, and as she worked and attended college, I was usually home alone during the day. Keep in mind, this took place in the early 90s. About halfway through the summer, a girl from my school, Maria, moved into a house about a block away from us. I didn't know Maria that well, and it wasn't until she moved in that I really started spending a lot of time with her. I did not know her parents, and they didn't know my mom. When this event occurred, we had been hanging out for maybe a couple of weeks, riding bikes and going to the library together. Her mother and stepfather worked all day too, so we were mostly alone. Then one day I was at her house, when her mom was home. Maria and I were out in the yard when her mom came to the door and hollered for me. She was like, hey, did your dad ever manage to find you? Which to me was super weird. So I was like, what? Yeah, she said. Your dad called here a couple of days ago and asked if you were at our house. He said he couldn't find you. I was stunned and had no idea what she was talking about. To Maria's mom, a virtual stranger, the call probably made sense. To those who knew me, though, it was wild. The actual people who knew me knew that my dad didn't live with me. He had never lived with me. In fact, he lived a couple of hours away, in a different county, and at that point in my life, I could count the number of times he had been to my house on one hand. There was no animosity or drama there. He could see me whenever he wanted but we weren't close at all. He'd never been to the town in which I was living. I hadn't seen him in at least six months, and seeing as to how we didn't have a phone, we hadn't recently spoken. He had no idea Maria even existed. He'd never met any of my friends. My mom hadn't even met Maria or her parents. So I was a little freaked out and asked, are you sure it was me he was looking for? Maria's mom said she was sure, She said he'd apparently recited my full name, middle and all, and described me, including my recent haircut, and glasses. My dad had never seen my glasses, he didn't even know I wore them, I'd only had them for maybe a week. She said he'd asked if she knew where I was, that he couldn't find me, and she told him to try my apartment. He'd apparently said, okay, and simply hung up. Well. Of course, I went straight to a payphone and called my dad as soon as I left. And, of course, he had no idea what I was talking about. In fact, it bothered him. To this day, I have no idea what that was about. Was it a prank call? Or somebody coincidentally looking for their daughter of the same name and physical description? And Maria's mom thought it was me? Or like some guy actually trying to abduct or stalk me? But in that case how did he know to call maria's house he would have needed to know maria's parents last name for one thing and her mother had remarried her last name was different and what was the point of all of this i was often alone i was probably easily abductable at that time nothing like that ever happened again but a few weeks later i did get a really strange feeling after coming home from the used bookstore i'd just gotten upstairs and had unlocked my apartment door when something like trepidation hit me with full force. The living room looked fine, I didn't see or hear anyone, but I got the strongest sense that someone had just been in that room a few seconds before. When I tried to step forward, every hair on my body stood straight up. I didn't question it, just slammed the door, ran down the stairs, and stayed at the library until my mom got off of work. Maria's family moved a few weeks later, but we were there for another year, and as far as I know, nothing else happened. Upon telling this story, I felt compelled to FaceTime my mom and see if she remembered anything else. She not only remembered it, but said that she'd gone down and talked to Maria's parents at the time, something that I didn't know. Apparently the guy had also asked if there were any places I might be like he was fishing for information or something. The biggest thing, though, is that he asked using my full name. My dad never, ever used that name. He's the only person in the world who calls me by a very certain nickname, a shortened version of my longer name. My 11-year-old theorized that whoever was calling was planning on abducting me and called Maria's house posing as my dad so that when I disappeared, my dad would be the main suspect. He may have known just enough about me to know that my parents were separated, but not enough to understand certain details, like my nickname or my parents' situation. Even 30 years later, I still find myself wondering, who was pretending to be my dad? This has been ongoing for some time now, but tonight, It was particularly weird. In fact, I'm telling this story from under my blankets, kind of freaking out still. So some context, I'm 25, female, and I live on the second story of my building in a moderately large city in the United States. We have a lot of homeless people in my area and there's a safe injection site right next to my home. I'll mention right off the bat that I've been houseless within my lifetime, from ages eight to 10 and grew up in the quote-unquote care of an addict. I completely empathize with folks who are having a tough go at things. However, I also value my safety, and my neighbor's safety for that matter, so I will preemptively apologize if at any point I sound frustrated at this ongoing situation. I'm mad at the situation itself that has plagued both the life of myself and the houseless man who is tormenting my building. This all started about a year ago. When my boyfriend and i were nearly attacked by this man while downstairs in our parking lot to summarize the situation we had just gotten home or my partner was going to drop me off we didn't live together at the time we kind of do now but only on the weekends and as we said our good nights we noticed a man pacing in the visitors parking lot who was seemingly having a rough time we kept our distance car doors locked and windows up and eventually the man got the hint and left, just to set the scene a bit here. My parking lot has two sections. One is the public or guest parking area. The second is a locked gate with a smaller locked door for residents to safely park overnight. The gate requires a fob entry, and the door has a regular building key. I got out of the car and proceeded to walk towards the door, key in hand. My boyfriend started up the car, which caused the houseless man to rush back into the parkade and promptly attack the car. He hopped onto the hood, beating on the windows and trying to rip off the mirrors. I watched in horror as this terrifying situation evolved right next to me, a mere fourteen feet away. I quickly got my key into the lock and opened the door at lightning speed. The sound of my keys caught the attention of the man, and he promptly turned his attention towards me, sprinting along the way. Thankfully, by this point, I had begun closing the door behind me. By the time he got to me, I had slammed the door in his face- and stepped backwards while he screamed at me. When my partner realized I was safely behind a locked door, he got into gear and drove away. Moments later, he called me and instructed to get away from the door, and to safely get inside. It was a good thing that he did. I felt like I was frozen. I couldn't move. My heart was pounding out of my chest as the man screamed disgusting things at me, most of which revolved around essaying me, and gesturing crudely at his groin while flicking his tongue. I finally broke my fear freeze, walked away as he chanted, Pretty lady, pretty lady, want a taste? Those words are burned into my memory even now. I rushed upstairs and quickly closed the blinds of my windows. I heard him still yelling and chanting outside for a good few minutes after. But then I heard something unusual. It was a lighter clicking. The silence was deafening as the lighter clicked repeatedly. Eventually the click stopped and he began laughing. I looked outside. Peering through the blinds, I realized he was attempting to set our building's wooden fence on fire. Luckily, it had been raining, so the fence wasn't catching. I quickly hopped on a call with emergency services who sent a police car and a fire truck. As soon as the cop car pulled up, the man went ballistic and started screaming bloody murder. They apprehended him quickly and took him away in the ambulance. Months passed with no sign of him, but one day, a resident in my building reported being attacked by a man who matched his description to a T. After that incident, we the residents repeatedly heard him screaming, crying, moaning, and laughing at least three times a week outside our building, generally at night. He also started trashing and damaging people's cars when they parked in the guest lot, Thankfully, we installed a new gate last week that closes off the guest parking behind another fob-activated gate. The thing is, as soon as the gate got installed, the man left us alone. It's been a quiet week. It's been nice. But tonight? About an hour ago, I was laying in bed scrolling on TikTok when I heard what first sounded like soft sobbing. At that point, I thought it was coming from TikTok. But after some scrolling... I realized it was coming from outside. I looked out there, and there he was, sobbing and pacing around the back alley. He suddenly switched gears though, and began jogging while groaning loudly, and continuing to cry while occasionally hitting, attacking the new fence we installed. He is seemingly left now, but I'm terrified at his new habit. I'm really hoping he doesn't start crying outside my building routinely. I feel truly terribly for the man. And I also feel bad making this post, but the whole situation is really freaking me out. I don't feel safe in my own home, and I needed a place to vent. The situation sounds to me as if it involves mental illness, and that only makes me feel worse for this man. It's obvious that he needs help in whatever situation he's enduring. And while I'd like to assist, it scares me to high heaven every time I see or hear this man present himself. When I was much younger, and considerably more naïve, I worked in a large college kitchen. We had three large walk-in fridges that contained all the frozen and cold foods. The farthest one was the fridge that had a faulty interior handle, so we had to have freezer buddies in order to enter, one to hold the door, and one to get the ingredients. One of my coworkers, we'll call him Slug, 34-year-old male, who was a bit of an odd fellow who followed me, a 19-year-old female, like a little puppy. He made comments that were inappropriate, but nothing was ever done. One day, Slug was helping me by holding the door while I loaded stuff onto my prep cart. I felt off about this situation, especially with his random comments. Are you single? What's your type? Are you a virgin? I stopped listening after the second question. From the door... I hear my name. It would be a shame if the door closed and we got stuck in here together. I'll make sure to keep you warm. I looked up about halfway through him talking to see him closing the freezer door. I began screaming as the door clicked closed and I was trapped with the greasy heap of a man. Now the anxiety of my situation was overwhelming and the freeze or fight kicked in. He took a few steps towards me as if he was going to hug me. And I lost it. I hit him twice before he realized what was happening. As the daughter of a police officer, I was taught to defend myself, and that's exactly what I did. He was face down on the cold floor when my sous-chef ripped open the door with two other male co-workers ready to beat his ass. My sous-chef put me in his office while they dragged Slug out of the building and left him bleeding outside. He cried about how I attacked him for, quote, accidentally closing the door, trying to help. But what Slug didn't know was that the security cameras that were in the back of the fridge to make sure employees don't smoke in there caught all of his actions, and they certainly appeared to be on purpose. So all this BS was caught on camera with audio. He was promptly fired and spent about six weeks stalking me before he got to meet my dad in uniform at our home one night. Restraining order required. But that's a story for a different time. I'm a long-time lurker here, but this is my first ever post. I've been dying to get more opinions on what this encounter really was, because the people I've told tend to brush it off as me being paranoid. So something creepy happened to me. I'm a female, and I was 26 in 2020 when it happened. This was back when just about everything was closed down during the pandemic, and I was still studying to be a teacher. One of the requirements for teaching is to pass the RECA exam, which is a four-hour-long test that is commonly taken at a testing center. I found a testing location that was still open, and made myself an appointment. Since COVID regulations were in effect, I was told prior to arriving that test takers could not use the lockers to store their belongings. I don't know if it was a sanitation issue or what. Anyway, my mom offered to drive me to the test site, and said that she would pick me up afterwards to grab lunch. This is important because A. I didn't drive. And B, I decided to leave my phone with my mom because it would be easier with the lockers not being in service. I finished my exam about 10 minutes before the 4-hour time limit ends and went right outside to wait for my mom. I expected her to be outside in the parking lot because she's typically early to arrive for most things. But she wasn't. No big deal. I decided to stand in the middle of a parking space on the opposite side of the lot facing the building. I noticed a man who was dressed in a suit walking into the lot from a path between the testing site and another building that was in the center. He didn't acknowledge me, got into his car that was parked a few spots over to my left. He backed out of this spot and started turning his car in my direction, which was also the opposite direction of the only exit in this parking lot. I knew something was wrong, but before I could start making my way back into the testing site, He blocked the parking spot I was standing in with his car. He had his passenger side window rolled down and began to tell me how beautiful my hair was. I said thank you, and that's when he started to say other things. But I couldn't make it out because he began speaking softer. I felt myself take a step forward naturally to try to make out what he was saying, but stopped because I realized that that was probably what he wanted, me closer to the car. He must have noticed my apprehension, because he then began negotiating a friendship, saying he was from Uganda, and that he needed someone to show him around. This whole interaction lasted less than 30 seconds, and ended rather abruptly when out of nowhere, he put his car in reverse and dipped out of the parking lot. Now that this car was out of my way, I was able to see two workers from the test site had exited the building at some point, and were yelling for me to come back inside. They saw the interaction, thought it looked off, and offered that I wait for my mom in the lobby. Has anything like this happened to anybody before? Any men in nice clothes, with nice cars, acting borderline predatory? It really bothers me because young adults frequent these types of testing sites all the time, and leave dazed and vulnerable after sitting through four-hour exams, many times with nothing on them but an ID like me. Did this man know that? And are there others out there staking out test sites for this reason? Did those proctors save me from being trafficked? Or something worse? It's taken me many years to tell this story, out of both fear and embarrassment. I share this today as more than simply therapy for myself. But as a warning to all people, be careful who you meet on social media. In 2018, my ex-husband and I were at the very end of a tumultuous marriage. He and I had been polyamorous for about three years before I met this guy. His name was Jez. I met Jez on OkCupid. I was 28. He 42. We hit it off very quickly. After a few weeks of talking, I agreed to meet up with him at a restaurant close to my house. We sat and talked for a few hours before I invited him over to meet my husband. Things went very well, and they seemed to get along, so Jez and I began dating. This guy completely swept me off of my feet. Jez was sweet and caring. He enthusiastically listened to every little thing on my mind, engaged and validated me. Over and over again, he absolutely revered me for my strength and wisdom. He practically worshipped me for all that I was and all I was becoming. He showered me with gifts, flowers, and random good deeds, just to make me feel safe, wanted, and cared for. I had never been in a relationship that felt quite like that. It was wonderful, it was as though we had been looking for each other for years. After a few weeks though, he had a meltdown over my polyamorous nature. He quote, pulled the plug, because he said he was already falling for me. And couldn't handle sharing me with anyone. I stood my ground and accepted this boundary and the fact that I would have to let him go. I left that night sad but confident that I had done the right thing for the both of us. That next week, he sent me flowers and a card to my workplace begging for another chance and reassuring me that he would rather try than not and end up regretting it. Even though it was scary, he wanted to take this journey with me. We continued dating, and it was just as wonderful. Long nights we spent awake talking, sharing, laughing, lovemaking, and planning. We went places and did things that I had always wanted to do. Then, in the deepest, most intimate moments, when we would just sit in silence, he would grip my hand to his face in solidarity and astonishment, asking where I've been all this time. Our time together was effortless. We fit together like puzzle pieces. By August of 2018, my marriage had ended, by no fault of Jez's, and by October, my husband had moved out. I was on a lease at the time, and knew I couldn't afford the place on my own, so finding a roommate was essential. I had no support system to fall back on, nor did anyone else I know need a place at the time, so Jez offered to move in. Even then I was hesitant, we had only been together about 4 months, and I knew everything always changes when you move in with a partner. Despite my hesitation, I agreed. He was wonderful to me, how bad could it be? I was not prepared for the change that was to come. It was literally like night and day, Jez suddenly became a different person. He was extremely controlling, jealous, and lazy. Nothing like the person that I thought I had met. And the way he treated me progressively got worse and worse. Hanging out with friends became a burden, if not impossible, because he would blow up my phone, guilting me about leaving him alone or not involving him in some way. Yet even when I tried to, it was also treated as a burden and inconvenience as he would huff and puff his way through the concept of leaving space for anyone but ourselves. In December of 2018, we attended my work Christmas party. I had given him the option whether he wanted to go or not. It was really neither here nor there, especially because I had already learned that he really didn't do well if he felt pressured into social situations. I opened the invitation to him because he had expressed to me over and over that it was important for him that he was involved in my social life. For the full month he knew about it, he insisted that he wasn't going. I took it as him being introverted and didn't push the issue. I let him know that I would make sure he felt welcome if he decided to go, but not to feel obligated. I was surprised when he changed his mind at the last minute and insisted on going, and even more stunned when we went and he actively acted as though he did not wanna be there. Everyone there was incredibly welcoming and included him in the festivities and conversations. However, he still practically grumbled the entire night about the whole thing, mumbling insults and critiquing every little part of the party under his breath, as though being there was absolutely awful to have to endure. No one really seemed to notice the low whispering insults and gripes. At one point, after a couple of glasses of wine, my direct manager leaned into Jez and started praising him. She and I were very close, therefore she was intimately familiar with what I had gone through with my ex-husband. She said, I'm so happy she has you. "'bleeding through wine happy. "'You have been absolutely transformative for her, "'and it's so nice to see her finally happy and appreciated.' "'Without missing a beat,' "'Jez grimaced at the comment and quickly snapped back. "'You don't f***ing know me.' "'I honestly didn't believe my ears. "'It was one of those moments where time stops, "'and you just know you couldn't have heard that correctly.' "'I sat brewing on it for a minute "'before another lighthearted interaction with Jez "'prompted him to suddenly snap at me.' through grit teeth, stop it. This triggered me, and I lost it. I pulled him outside and asked him what his problem was. I called out his behavior and told him if he was going to act that way, that he could just leave. That if he didn't want to be there, he should have just stayed home. He ended up giving sort of a half-assed apology, and we went back inside and finished the party. I remember the drive home that night. Staring out the dark window at nothing in particular, in worried silence, I might have messed up, was my only thought through the entire drive. This all started out slow, of course, like waving me away or invalidating my experiences and ideas due to my age, that I was just dramatizing my experiences because I was young. The man who, not six months prior, had validated me, my trauma, and experiences to the ends of the earth. Now every time I started a story or tried to share anything, even trying to plan our meals for the week, he would openly show annoyance as though I was violating his time and attention. Before I knew it, he was snapping at me over every little thing. If I asked how his day was going or talked about mine, he would aggressively shut it down. Why do you always talk to me about that? I don't want to talk shop at home. I really don't care about your work. It's work. Before I knew it, I couldn't even bring him a plate of breakfast without being snapped at. It was as though he was testing me. When Jez and I first started dating, he flat out refused to talk about most all of his exes. He refused to name them or discuss any of the issues or lessons learned. They, quote, didn't matter, he would claim. They weren't in his life for a reason. It was the same reasoning he also used in reference to my more recent exes. Talking about them including my now ex-husband, may as well have become off-limits. Anytime I brought up either of our exes, he would become incredibly agitated, belittling, and just overall very aggressive. I took this as both an age gap issue, as I have a tendency to dwell, as well as insecurity and a threat to the life he was trying to build. However, after he moved in and this hot-button topic had been established, several times he would bring up his exes and how they looked, telling me on more than one occasion he would quote, never have dated me back in the day, and that I was lucky he lowered his standards. I didn't even really know what to say to this. I would laugh it off and shove it in my back pocket. Noted. He then started bringing up my looks and accusing me of catfishing him. I had stopped taking care of myself due to the isolation, and had also put on some weight, so most of my clothes that I had once felt great in no longer fit. And since Jez had also been dishonest with me about his financial position, he was always needing extra money here and there, leaving me broke almost all of the time. A horrible tragedy happened that following summer, while Jez and I were together. I received notice that a good friend I went to art school with shot himself in the head while tripping on LSD. Our whole class was devastated. He was, without contest, the best photographer of our entire class and one of the most kind-hearted individuals I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. Also, as someone who is very familiar with LSD, I was rocked. Jez, however, was far from supportive. He pretty much immediately shrugged it off. That's life. I guess that's what he gets for f***ing around with LSD. I was baffled at such an unsympathetic response, and even more later when Jez started to interrogate me about my relationship with this guy asking him when the last time it was that I had even talked to this friend. You don't even know this guy anymore. Who cares? I broke up with Jez the first time after he called me at work raging. I was busy, so I couldn't make it to the phone right away. But once I was finally able to answer, I was met with intense anger. It was storming, and one of my dogs was having an anxiety attack due to the storm and separation from me. This wasn't the first time, and he was well aware of what she needed in those moments. Why the f*** aren't you answering my calls? You answer when I call you. I don't care where you are. He went on for a few minutes, calling me a shitty girlfriend and laying into me over my sudden distance and lack of communication while I was at work. At this point, I was done, and I lost it. I tore into him over everything, especially causing problems for me at work. That being in my life is a privilege and if he's going to wake up every day acting like he hates me then I don't know what on earth he's even doing with me. I told him that I expected him to get his things and leave. He was always threatening to go back to his old roommates where there still was room so I didn't feel bad about the threat. I didn't want him there when I got home and we could coordinate times for him to come and get the rest of his stuff. He flat refused suddenly victimizing himself claiming he had nowhere to go. How dare you make me fall in love with you? How dare you take me to meet your father and then dump me? My manager and her husband ended up following me home that evening because she was concerned for my safety and had offered to let me stay with her for a few days. I will never forget the scene I walked into. Like Theon Greyjoy begging for his life, my boss stood next to me, watching as this 42-year-old man crawled on his knees before me begging for mercy and communication. At one point, wrapping his arms around my legs, crying into them. I can't believe this is happening. She's the love of my life, you know that, he cried to my boss. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. This was the antithesis of the heartless person I had been spending my days with. I shook him off and went to the back of the house, gathering enough of my things to get me through the next few days as well as any and all valuables I could think of. It took a few days, but after about a week, Jez began to blow up my phone. Apology after apology. Suddenly, he was the man I met again, full of humility and self-awareness. He acknowledged the awful way he had treated me and sent me walls and walls of well-thought-out messages, psychoanalyzing his own behavior, where it comes from, and the ways he knows it needs to change. I took him back. Like a dumb, desperate girl. I took him back. It wasn't long into the second round that he started to guilt me over the breakup. My panic had damaged his relationship with the people in my life, and he made sure that I knew it was my responsibility to fix it. It wasn't long after this that my car ended up breaking down at a gas station close to home. There was a very nice couple in the vehicle next to me that came to my rescue. And check things out under my hood the gentleman turned out to be a mechanic for a living so he had a pretty good theory about what could potentially be going on by this time i had already attempted to contact jez to let him know what was going on and where i was it wasn't long till he got off work so he told me to sit tight and he would be there shortly meanwhile this sweet couple stayed put and kept me company while i waited jez barreled in about 15 minutes later completely ignoring the couple that had helped me. Touching base, the gentleman handed me a slip of paper with a name and a phone number on it, reviewing what he thought was going on with my car, before Jez butted in, cutting him off. I said she's fine, he snapped. I could see the woman out of the corner of my eye, slink away at this comment, and get into the passenger seat of their car. I could feel the sudden tension like maybe she's been here before. The gentleman didn't move and shifted his attention to me as Jez walked into the store. I could see he was clearly concerned. Are you okay? He asked in a low, almost whisper. You don't have to answer that, but if you need anything, he looked down at the number in my hand and nodded to it. Seriously. With that, he got into the driver's seat of his car and drove away with his wife. I've thought about that couple countless times since that night. Everything went right back to the way it was before, as though the initial breakup never even happened. The same eggshells, the same belittling. If anything, it was worse, because I had permanently damaged our relationship. If I had just not been so dramatic, if I didn't run away from everything, then maybe he wouldn't have to work so hard for respect in my life. One night we got into an argument, I don't even remember what it was about, But i had to be up early for work the next morning so i paused the argument in order to get some sleep when i went to lay down i heard the tv turn on i have a sound bar so the volume can get pretty loud jez proceeded to turn the volume up and up and up far past any volume i ever pushed those same speakers to even for parties the walls were reverberating with the sound of the tv at astronomical volume Jez then started laughing hysterically. It was a laughter manic with anger as though something might be funny on TV. But he might also jump through a window right now. I remember laying in bed absolutely horrified at what was happening. I knew things had gotten bad, but now I was scared. I got out of bed and asked him to turn it down, to which he responded, scoffing. I'll watch TV if I f***ing want to, and turned it up even louder. I felt as if I was in a horror movie. I started crying at this point, begging him to please, please just let me sleep. He started mocking me and calling me names for crying. Oh, wow, poor baby is crying again. That's your card, isn't it? Crying. This caused the fight to start again, and he began to scream at me. Followed me to my bedroom where he suddenly punched a door not two inches from my head. His eyes were black and he looked me in the eye sending the clear, unsympathetic, and hostile message that that was a warning and next time he wouldn't miss. My whole system had shut down at this point and I sunk to the floor in a panic attack. My ex-husband had issue with violence. Jez knew that. All our rentals prior to the one had holes in walls and doors peppered throughout our unit due to my ex-husband's inability to handle his emotions. But he never hit me or even came close to it. I crumpled to the ground, feeling powerless, trapped and afraid. As my thoughts continued to race, he continued to berate and mock my panic state. Most of our argument from that night was a blur, but ended abruptly once he threatened to put my social security number on the dark web. At this point, all that was left in me was to fight. I blacked out and went ballistic, screaming at him to get out. I felt rabid, and dangerous as I screamed like a banshee for him to leave my home. It was over, and I was ending it that second. I contacted my landlord and explained what had been going on. Jez would also end up contacting her, weaving his own tale that I was moving out and tried to have the lease transferred into his name. Luckily, since I was several steps ahead of him, my landlord didn't fall for it and contacted me immediately. She personally came and changed my locks for me, gave me the personal contact of a police officer close by in case he showed up again, and took half of my rent off the next month. I'm forever grateful to her for these simple acts of kindness that were above and beyond anything I would ever expect from a landlord. It took weeks for him to stop messaging me. The only reason I didn't block him was out of fear that he would show up at my house. Though I had contacts for protection, I knew I would rather get a daily apology video than have to deal with him on my doorstep. So they persisted, for a while. The same act from before. The love bombing, the promises, grasping at straws trying to find the weak spot where I would let him back into my life. But I ignored it all. It continued for weeks before he finally gave up. He bowed out gracefully, stating boldly that he will always love me. I left him on read. The illusion was absolutely destroyed. It took me several years to pick up the pieces. If my divorce wasn't enough, this situation definitely made me lose trust in myself. I still don't understand what the endgame was. In one of our final discussions, I asked him desperately, What happened to the guy I fell in love with? Jez looked me dead in the eye, smirked, and said, That guy doesn't exist. I told you what I had to tell you in order to get you away from that fucking asshole husband of yours. You're just stupid and happen to fall for it.